Hello and welcome to Down to Earth Convos, Down Under, episode 24. In this episode, Jonathan Lincoln joins us to discuss strategies for slowing down and thinking about our interactions with our children to both create better experiences in the present as well as set them up to be more thoughtful in their own lives. Good morning, Jonathan. How are you? I'm very, very well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today, for joining me today in our lessons that we don't teach at school. Our uh, Brad, my co-host Brad, got called out short notice, so it'll be you and I today, and I'm so looking forward to it. Awesome. So what I'd like to do now is to formally introduce you to our audience and remind you that our audience are parents, which you know all too well because you've designed and crafted today's session for parents. So thank you for that, Jonathan. So now it's my privilege to introduce Jonathan Lincoln, who is a founding director of Small Giants Advisory. He's a nationally registered psychologist, an Ainsley Master Master Coach, Fellow of the International Association of Facilitators and Certified Scrum Master. Jonathan is recognised as a leading expert in the design and delivery of solutions that address human complexity in the workplace. The topics of safety, high-value teaming and human-centred design. Over the last 20 years, Jonathan has designed and delivered programs for a wide range of clients globally, empowering people to believe that they can do better today than they did yesterday. His work has received numerous awards. Jonathan is an engaging facilitator, a keynote speaker, co-author, and today it is my privilege to have you here, Jonathan. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That's a wonderful introduction. (laughs) Very generous. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So I'm excited about today because parenting is very high on my values. I'm a parent Mm. myself and and you are too. And we're all about empowering parents to raise emotionally intelligent kids. Mm. So thank you for crafting your work that's going to be designed to help our audience today being parents so that we can help our future generations be more intelligent, (laughs) become better thinkers. That's it. That's it. Yep. For sure. So where would you um, like to start? Well, I think um, if we were to maybe take a bigger picture view and we looked at parenting maybe in context, um, my, um, my partner and I used to make this joke about the, um, the therapy fund that we had for each of our children and that every time we did something stupid, we'd say, oh, there's another $100 for the therapy fund that they're invariably going to have to have as a result of our, of our parenting. And although we were joking, um, the the uh, the sort of sad reality is, lots of the people that I used to see when I was acting in a clinical role, uh, a lot of the topics went back to their experience as children, or went back to uh, the quality of the parenting that they had uh, they had received. And so I probably want to begin this by saying, first and for first of all, you you do not have to be perfect as a parent, uh, which is a relief because you can't be. Uh, there's no real manual for it. We really are just sort of working it out as we go along. But there is probably, if we had an awareness that we really are shaping a human being and that, that they're their own human being, like our, our success and uh, sort of our life cannot be lived through them. We're, we're, we're shaping a future human being and we're going to have a major influence on that human being. And so we talk about, um, I talk about these things where I would say in, in society, there are there are a number of roles or functions we can take on that we would we would consider noble roles. And when we say noble, we're not referring to uh, any type of royalty or station in life, but we're referring to a role where the person in that function or in that role 
has an undue amount of influence or an unusual amount of influence on the lives of other people. So uh, in an organization, uh, a leader is a noble role. Le leadership, is, because that leader is going to impact the lives of like lots and lots of people. Uh, a teacher is a noble role. Teachers have a massive influence on the, uh, the quality of life and the, the way that the children that they're teaching, you know, will go forward in life. And then parents. Parenting is probably the single biggest influencer that there is on a young person as they're growing up. We're hardwired to look to our parents to uh, guide us in how we see the world and how we behave and how we act, but most importantly, on how we view ourselves. And so I would say, at the, almost paradoxically, go easy on yourself as a parent. Forgive yourself of your shortcomings and you're going to get it wrong and it's okay. And at the same time, be aware that it's, it's a really, really important role and that we can, um, if we're just a little bit mindful of it and a little bit clever about it, we can you know, have a significant impact on creating or influencing a really, really effective human being as, uh, as we're going forward sort of thing. And so um, I know it sounds paradoxical that it's really, really important, but don't go too hard on yourself, but that's sort of the, the paradox that we sort of think um, seems, to be, seems to be most effective for, for parenting as we, as we go forward. Sort of thing. That's a that's a really great introduction for today's session with what you're going mm. to share and a reminder to parents. Yeah, there is no guidebook, no. and that's a pure balance right there. Anyway, you know, it's a paradox, and it's like you've got the most influential role, the single <laughs> most influential role in your child's life. Yet, don't mm. take it too hard on yourself. But yeah. tapping into, you know, mindset coaches and psychologists and the experts in every area of life, we can be trained and master. We can do a better job at parenting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we can, we can, and I think one of the challenges of it is is that we uh, there is this life that becomes for you know sort of eighteen years becomes our responsibility, and for most of us, the love that we will then feel for that child is it's an overwhelming love, and any time an emotion uh, becomes that intense, it, it's very easy for that emotion to override uh, the quiet mind or the rational mind or the you know the, the, just even the clever mind. And so it's a very, very difficult job. We love that child so much and we want the best for them. And yet at the same time, we have to let them make their own mistakes and we have to let them find their way in the world. Um, and it's a very, very difficult task. And, um, and so it is uh, the parent who can find that balance is, is um, probably, uh, probably doing very, very well. And for the times we're not, um, well, that just makes you a human being. So, you know, it's a... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, don't beat yourself up. Go easy on so. yourself. That's great. So. Mm. so today, Jonathan, you're going to share a couple of your skills to mm. help parents and you're going to go right through and explain how these skills work. And yeah. is that to do with becoming a better thinker, leading by good example? They'll become a reflection of us. When you're a better thinker, you're a better person, a better, a better teenager maybe, yeah. a better parent, a better yeah. leader and have a better life. This is a lot of, about what you do, isn't it? Yeah, so we we um, we work to a, the basic premise that um, uh, thinking is not a mysterious process. Uh, thinking is a set of skills, and it's a set of skills that you can learn, and then you can practice them, and you can master them. And if you master the skills of thinking, so we would say, as you've indicated, better thinker, better life. So a better thinker is a better parent, and a better thinker is a better leader, and a better thinker uh, is a better partner. Um, and so we break the thinking process down to a set of functions and then a set of skills. And what we're going to do today is I'm going to explain, uh, we're going to look at two of the thinking functions that everybody will be able to relate to. 
but we're going to um, highlight where we can start to uh, consciously or deliberately uh, intervene in this process. And by doing so, we can, if we practice that, we can get for ourselves probably a, a better result in our, in our attempts to, be, to become you know, really, really effective parents. And so when we look at thinking, we break thinking up into three functions. So we talk about a three function model of thinking. And while the model itself is not a complete model, because if it was a complete model, it'd be so complex, it would be ridiculous. Um, but it's, it's, a, it is a, it's an accurate model. And so the first of these functions is what we refer to as the sorting function. So every second, there are millions and millions of bits of data coming in from the outside world that come in through our senses and then get uh, go to our brain. And then on top of that, there's a whole bunch of data that's coming up into the brain from inside of us. So everything that's happening in our body is picked up by our peripheral nervous system, gets filtered to the central nervous system, and it all goes to the brain. And it's all sent to this function that we call the attention center. Now, the attention center is not a single function. It's a whole bunch of functions that act together to give us this process of attention. But the main function of the attention center is to sort this incoming data. And the attention center decides of these millions and millions of bits of data, what information will go up to our conscious mind and that we will become conscious of or we will become aware of and gets processed consciously. And then what data gets filtered down to the subconscious mind that is processed outside of awareness. And this process is going on all the time. It, it happens 24 hours a day while you're awake, while you're asleep, it doesn't matter. But the, this attention center is constantly filtering this data. And so as an example, at the moment, there is data going to your brain about your big toe. But until I say big toe, you're not paying attention, so attention to your big toe. But as soon as I say big toe, then you're, you know, I draw your attention to it. And now you're mindful of your big toe. Um, the, the trick will be stop thinking about your big toe. Um, <laughs> but, but what would normally happen is if, if we, we don't ever think about our big toe unless we kick it or there's pain or there's discomfort, then it gets conscious attention. Otherwise, data is coming to the brain constantly about our toe, but the attention center just says it's not a priority, send it down to the subconscious for, for processing. So um, now the attention process itself is uh, unique, well, it's not unique, but it's rare in our thinking in that uh, attention can be both an automated process and a deliberate process. So if I'm not actively engaged in what I'm paying attention to, our attention center will just have us pay attention to whatever is the most dangerous or interesting thing that's going on in that moment. But we can program it. And, and we can say to our brain through our behavior, this, these things, these are important and I want you to pay attention to this. And how we program attention is, if I spend a lot of time on a topic, then I'm saying to my brain, that's important. Pay attention to that. If I do something repeatedly, if I come back to it over and over again, then I'm saying to my brain, that's important. Pay attention to that. If I put a lot of focused attention on a thing, then I'm saying it's important. And if, if, if when I'm engaging with that topic, there is a lot of emotion, again, the brain says, right, that's an important thing. And an example of us programming our attention center is, have you ever had the experience that you're going to buy a new car and you decide that you're gonna buy a red SUV? And so we go through the process of, and then all of a sudden, every other car on the road seems to be a red SUV. So what's, of course, the number of red SUVs on the road has not changed at all. It's just that all the other cars 
when the, the data comes in about them, the attention center says, not important, not important, not important, sub goes through the subconscious. When it sees the red SUV, because we've spent time researching it and we've researched, you know, we've gone back to it multiple times and we're excited about buying a new car and we've been focused on it, we've said to our brain, find red SUVs. So as we drive along, it, it seems like there's this miraculous event of, uh, of all these red SUVs. Now, where this sort of connects to us as parents is, attention is um, very, very binary, meaning if I'm paying attention to this thing, by a neurological function, it means I cannot pay attention to anything else. So attention is like a laser. I can pay attention to one thing at a time. And if I pay attention to a thing repeatedly and I spend time on it repeatedly and I get emotional about it repeatedly, then my brain will find more and more of that thing for me and will disregard the other things around it. And so as parents, sometimes we might get into a situation where we, there might be a single thing, something that our child is doing that annoys us or it frustrates us or we get anxious about. If they keep doing that, that means their life will be wrecked or something. And we can, because we're paying attention to that topic, it means that our brain will naturally start to filter out everything else about our child. And so let's just say uh, our child's room is messy. Uh, and we, and, you know, we walk past the bedroom and our brain goes, I got a messy room. And so we say to the child, hey, can you please clean your room? It's really important to me. The child goes, yeah, 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 yeah. But then the next day, again and again. And suddenly all the conversations are about the messy room. But what the brain will do is because I'm paying attention to that and I'm spending time on it and I'm doing it repeatedly over a sequence of days and I'm starting to get angry about it, meaning there's an emotional content, the brain will just lock on onto the messy room and suddenly our child is only that messy room and we will not be paying attention to the other wonderful things about our child that, you know, in every other facet of their life, they might be doing great. They might be doing well at school and they're well socialized and they're polite when they go out and, you know, but we stop seeing that because we only see the thing that we're programming our brain to see. And we've got to take into account from the child's side. So the child's got to make sense of this. And so the child is sort of going, what, why are you getting so upset about this? I'm like a good kid. You know, why, why is that now my whole life sort of thing? And so it can become important that when we, if we find ourselves locking on to a single dimension or a single topic about our child, that it's probably an important time to just to just stop and take a step back and remind ourselves there are lots and lots and lots of good things about our child and that this one thing isn't the sum total of, of them as a, as a developing human being. This is one element. And in the grand scheme of things, is this battle worth it? Is the anger worth it? And is the frustration worth it? And is anybody going to die if their room's a mess? And, you know, it's sort of like, what are we focusing on? So we have this shorthand and we would say, whatever you attend to, you get, you're going to get more of. And so if you attend to what's wrong with the child, as in the room, the brain will very quickly start to expand that topic of what's wrong with them. And pretty soon, our little one, our, ch our child can be sort of looking at us, just going, you're nothing but critical. You don't appreciate anything that I do that's good. You uh, and we're going we're gonna to have a situation, one, where we're in conflict, and then two, um, where the, the, the child's self-esteem can, can be being directly impacted on, on this. Um, there's a story that uh, when I was, um, some years ago, I owned a, a company and we worked almost exclusively in high-risk environments. 
And uh, so we, you know, a lot of miners and, and oil rig workers and people like that would sit in front of us and we were teaching them how their brains work so that they could keep themselves safe, um, more safe. And in one session, I was, you know, sitting in, I was teaching and there were 15 miners in front of me, but uh, in the very, very middle of the, of the sort of table where they were sitting was like the biggest, the biggest man I'd ever seen in my life. Like he was a giant. And for the whole morning, he just sat there with his arms folded like this and he just stared at me. And everywhere I moved, his eyes just tracked me like, you know, like a predator or something like that. <laughs> anyway, and it was a little bit disconcerting, you know, because he really was, he was a giant. Anyway, we were going to a break and um, everybody starts to sort of get up and walk out. And then he sort of stands up in his lumbering fashion, just goes, you outside. And I'm like, <laughs> oh no, like I, th I thought I've offended him. I've got to get a plate. You know. Anyway, so I go outside and I, um, and he's like, you know, standing with his arms folded and I just waited quietly. And then finally he says to me, he says, uh, I just got remarried. And I said, okay, how's that going for you? He goes, it's wonderful. And I said, do you like being married? He says, oh, I love it. I love it. And I said, but, and I know there's a but, otherwise we're not standing outside having the comments like there's some problem. Yeah. And I said, but, and he goes, she's got a son. And I said, okay. He says, kids are total muppet. And I'm like, oh, okay. we, now we've got the source of the problem. So I said to him, I said, look, now you know that she's never going to choose you over him, right? That's, that's her child. The mama bear aspect is going to always, you know, side there. I said, is it causing contention? He said, yep. And he indicated it was causing a lot of contention. And I said, okay. He said, well, what do I do? I said, so back then we had them for a couple of days and there was a month break and then we had them for another day. And so I said to him, I said, all I want you to do in this month is I said, I want you to find anything, just one thing, anything that is good about this, about this kid. Just one thing. And he's like, oh, there's not going to be. I said, you know, do you, do you want your marriage to work? Yes. Well, you find the thing. He goes, oh, okay. And then, you know, <laughs> anyway, I totally forget about this because there's a month in between and I've been doing all these other um, trainings and stuff. But I remember because a month later I'm walking down to the training room and he's there waiting for me. He's standing out the front of the building with his arms folded. And before I even get there, he just looked, he goes, it hasn't worked. Anyway, we go around the corner and again, uh, he, you know, pausing for dramatic effect. I, I don't know why he did that, but he just stood there for like quite a while. And then finally he said, um, the kid's good with motors. And I said, what? He goes, the kid is good with motors. Now, why this was a big deal was even though this gentleman now worked as a as a, a haul truck operator, he had come out of the maintenance department and he'd hurt his back. And so now he was a driver. So I knew the whole engines thing was a big deal. And I said, he's good with motors. He said, yeah. I said, so? He said, well, so what they'd done is when he found out that the, this young man was good with engines, he'd gone and bought an old V-dub and they'd put it in the garage. And so on the weekend, they would work together on this V-dub, which was great. The rest of the week, they just stayed out of each other's way. And so they're getting what they want. Mum is saying, oh, my boys are getting on. And everything was <laughs> everything was sort of hunky-dory sort of thing. But the, the point of that story is, at the beginning, this man makes this decision. The kid's a Muppet. He's a total Muppet. And that language says that now all the brain's looking for is only attend to the annoying or bad or wrong things about this boy. And he found it. But what I knew was, if, if I get him to focus on something different, What's good about the boy? I know he's also going to he's also going to find that. And so, as parents, if we find ourselves getting into this this situation where a topic is becoming the whole relationship with our child, we need to be very careful because the brain will turn 
uh, what's wrong with the child into our whole experience of them. And it's just not gonna be the case. You're probably raising a very, very effective young human being. And there happens to be just one or two things that we're finding frustrating, finding frustrating at the moment. Brilliant, and thank you. Because the way you explain things, in, and we know, I know from you and I knew already that the brain learns in pictures and we connect through storytelling. Yep. And there's no better way to explain something that, that is so important like that, that skill of just looking for the good just yeah. one thing, just one thing. How simple is that? You put it so simply. And mm. Dr. Oh, not Dr. Uh, Sir Richard Branson says, look for the good in people. And he's one of the world's best leaders, business leaders, isn't he? And, yeah, people, and, for sure. yeah, and he talks about, if I'm correct, um, you know, people are like flowers. If you water them, they'll bloom or you fertilize them, if probably more so, they'll bloom. <laughs> so it's, we, we thrive on praise. Is that right, Jonathan? Oh, what, we, um, the whole stick and carrot thing, while we are motivated by the avoidance of pain, we, and it, it is true, a human being will always learn better and will always thrive under conditions of praise and acknowledgement and encouragement, more so than the fear of punitive action, like every time. And that's, that's irrefutable. Um, there's, um, there's a really, uh, I had this really wonderful experience last Christmas. I, uh, I ordained as a Buddhist monk for a short period of time. And one of the things that I noticed while I was there was that the senior monk, even though I knew we were like getting some things wrong and we were probably a bit too frivolous and bit, we laughed probably too much, the senior monks never corrected us. They never correct. They never came over and said, don't do this, don't do that. And when I inquired to my teaching monk, a, guy called, a, a monk called Venture, when I said, why, why, don't you, why don't you correct us? And he said, we don't think it works. He said, I know you're watching us. I know you're smart enough to work it out. He goes, you'll work it out. Our job is to accept you as you are and to encourage you and to, and when he said it, it like it really sort of landed with me. Um, so in, in the uh, Theravada tradition, a, a new monk will not be offered any correction at all for the first five years of their ordination. Um, because they believe that a person will work it out. A person will observe and they'll work it out themselves and that criticizing that person or correcting that person will not do any, it'll do no good, they say. And so, yeah, yeah no, it was a real, it was a real moment for me. I thought, wow, I would, even I don't see it that way. You know, I, I do think that encouragement and praise and recognition and mentoring and that, I do think that's more, more valuable, but I, I probably would never have taken it to that. To that extreme so that was wow. very very interesting yeah, yeah that is very much wow and very profound mm. well we mm. could be all reminded of that in a business environment in a workplace environment as parents well i'm just going to take that one on that's excellent mm. a great story another great story and even with ourselves too i think we um if we watch the internal uh dialogue in our own minds lots of people would probably acknowledge that we can be very, very critical with ourselves. We can be very harsh in the language we will use towards ourselves. And so it, it causes me to wonder, well, if it's good enough for, you know, a senior teaching monk to not criticize, maybe it's good enough for you to not, to not criticize, meaning myself, and that maybe I need to uh, just ease up on that just a little bit. So, just as a Absolutely. Be your own best friend yeah. and in internal dialogue. That voice inside is very powerful, isn't it? We are what we think about most of the time. It's it, it's it. And that's not to say we don't learn and that we don't uh, observe when we make errors or when we could be better. We do, but we just don't need to beat ourselves up over it. I don't, I, I don't think so anyway. 
Excellent. So that's um, something that we could be mindful of. And then it's not only like I, we spoke about uh, last week when we touched base, Jonathan, we, we listen auditory, we'll learn and we'll retain so much. And then we need to visualize like the frontal cortex. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, We're learning mm -hmm. what 40% or something like that. So we, and then kinesthetically, we need to actually do so. And, oh, that's what I was going to bring up. Our mm -hmm. kids will learn from what we do more so than what we say, like the monks, like the story 100%. you had there. Um, one of my favorite sayings is um, what you're doing is speaking so loudly in my ears, I can't hear what you're saying. Um, words are easy. Any, anybody can say anything, but truth is in action. And more to the point, we know that children learn osmotically, meaning we observe, the child observes the parent and, and is processing most of this observation unconsciously. But, they, but the, the reason why, as we get older, we realize that we have become our parents is because we've been learning from them osmotically. And the, 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 uh, the sort of standard that we set or the example that we set for, for our little ones, uh, you know, as good as you are, that's probably as good as, you know, they're going to be sort of thing. You know, we can't, we can't be average in our life and expect them to be exceptional. If we want them to be exceptional, we need to be striving for exceptional in our own lives, or it's just, it's not, it's not going to happen. Excellent. Hmm. Words of wisdom right there. So yeah, we need to lift out to, to raise more intelligent, better thinking children. We need to do you the bet. same because they're a product of their upbringing and their environment <laughs> and, and the parent. Oh, if, wow. if you really wanted, if you really want your child to be more emotionally intelligent, the the most effective way hands down by bar none is you become more emotionally intelligent if and if and if as you become more emotionally intelligent and particularly then if you will talk to your child about the things that you're learning or the things that you're realizing or the things that you're now trying to practice um, that is by far the most effective way to raise a more emotionally intelligent child um and the, the research on that is just uh unequivocal sort of thing or inequivocal one of those words that has in it, you know. Um, yeah. It's for sure. Let's say yeah. you can't deny it. Well, the no, there you go. Great. There. There, that's much better. Yeah, that's much better. Not deniable. Yeah. I know. I struggle with a few words. So. <laughs> I, I, even as I was saying that, I was going, "Yeah, I'm not sure which is the right one here." Anyway, we'll bring it back into balance. You know, yeah, emotional like, intelligence. It's and all that's it's a great message there too, because it's like if as a parent and we get something wrong that we, or you know, we make an error, we do a, we we make a little blow. We've got to watch. They're going to watch our behaviour, how we respond to like having a bad day at work. Yep. Uh, you know, things not going right for us. I'm. We spoke about this in our debrief last week. Yeah. Have you got time to share a little bit about that? So, because I know that a lot of your work's done in the workplace as the mm. leaders in the corporate environment. Mm. And I was, you know, I'm a big fan of Dr. Meg Mecca, mm. who did a great TED talk on cool dads. It's I recommend every parent. Right. Okay. I, oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. I'll put, make sure Brad puts it in our notes. That'd be awesome. I'd, I'd, I'd be keen to see that. Oh, yeah, you, I think yeah. you'll love it too. Um, she's really great. And it's very entertaining, by the way. It's a TED Talk. It goes for about 15 minutes. And Dr. Meg Mecca talks about how when a like the dad comes home from work, within 15 seconds, that son or daughter will be working out what mood that dad's in and whether they're going to hang around a little bit. Can you speak yeah, to that yeah. scenario, please? Yeah, so, um, so uh, um, okay, all of the ability that we have to do or carry out higher order human thinking. So decision-making and um, um, managing other people 
and managing our, our emotions and engaging in technically demanding work. All of that takes what we call conscious processing. That conscious processing is available to us each day in a very finite amount. And it's dictated by a certain amount of chemicals that are produced overnight in the sleep process. And once you run out of those chemicals, that higher order thinking becomes very, very difficult. In fact, it, it becomes impossible. We, we will revert back to habit. Um, and so what most of us will have experienced to some degree is, is that we're at work and we're the, you know, the consummate professional, but we're making a whole bunch of decisions and somebody, you know, is frustrating us, but we manage our emotions and we act professionally and we have to, you know, engage with this technically demanding work and all of it is fatiguing the brain. And so we get to the end of the day and all of those chemicals, which allow the best of us to come to the fore, they're spent. And so then we you know, travel home, probably in the traffic, causing more frustration. And in the moment we then engage with those people who love us and who we love, suddenly we go home and, and the, the phrase we use is we kick the dog. But, but what that means, you know, the family's excited to see us, so they approach us with all this energy. We're tired and frustrated. And so we might be, you know, and, and so what happens is our loved ones who are coming to express love to us are met with our rejection and sometimes with a fairly cranky rejection. That's, that's a very, very, um, that can be over time, a very damaging thing to an, an, intimate, an intimate relationship. And so the author of this work, their name uh, eludes me at the moment, but I'll, I'll get it to you so you can put the reference in, but they talk about this thing called the third space. And they say the first space is at work and then the second space is at home, but between them, there is this time. And that what we can do if we're just a little bit mindful is that on the drive home or even when we get home, just pause, pause for 60 seconds and just take a couple of breaths, remind yourself work has work is finished now. And I'm about to go and engage with the people that are most important to me. These people love me and I say that I love them. And so that we just pause for a second and we might take a couple of breaths and remind ourselves that when we walk in the door, there probably will be excitement or there could be uproar or there could be frustration. There could be any of those things, but that in that first 15 seconds or in that first few minutes, we will then, we then have the opportunity um, to um, be the best of us, to act nobly, to, to that we, when we turn up, the situation gets better. It doesn't get worse because we're there. Now, that few minutes is not going to re-energize us. It's not going to suddenly fill us with all the energy. It won't, but it does just buy us uh, enough wherewithal that we can engage as, as more effective parents. Those, those connection points, like as in when we come home, they're really, really important times. The way our world is set up means that they're often the times where we are most fatigued and we're most tired and we're most cranky. But if we, if we can just be a little bit mindful of that third space, we can buy ourselves something really, really important in regards to the relationship, not only with our, with our, our, our children, but with you know, our, our respective partner as well. Um, so that when we come home, people aren't viewing us as, oh God, you know, dad's home or mom's home. It's, you know, we're not a problem. We, when, we, when we come home, things get better. And that's a much nicer association for our children and our partner to have with us, uh, as opposed to, <laughs> oh God, dad's home. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, with what the world's going through right now and everything's really going pretty well in Australia here and there, yeah. but it would never have been more important for this message to get out there than now. And, you know, it's a great thing that the dads are going to work and coming home from work, all the mums, by the way, 
And for those people who are, um, you know, trapped in their home, that's a different scenario and that's pretty tough too. We almost need a different space in the home, would you say? Yeah. Well, find, like, yeah. Find your own. Yep. Like Same thing. A space. Like, and that doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's the backyard. It doesn't. Um, we're doing some work with uh, a, uh, a helicopter company in Brazil at the moment. Uh, and we're doing this work online. And they're in the middle of their pandemic has not finished. Like they're in a very, very, very difficult situation. And in one of the, in the last session that we had, we were talking about this very topic and saying to them, you know, everything in your world at the moment, everybody's anxious. Uh, the world's very chaotic for you. It's, it looks dangerous. But if everybody succumbs to this and nobody stands up and nobody is calm and nobody tries to be the bright light in the dark, well, if it's not you, then who's going to do it? Um, and so one of the, uh, one of the, it was, he was a pilot, he's a helicopter pilot. He came back um, in the next, in the session after that. And he said that, because I was talking about finding a quiet space, finding the time to just get your head, to get, to get your conscious mind settled again, remind yourself of what you're doing and who these people are and why you're doing it. And he said he found his quiet time in the toilet. Um, he, would go, he would go to the bathroom and, then, and that was his few minutes to breathe and remind himself. He goes, because I knew I wasn't going to get interrupted in the, in the bathroom. So I thought, oh, good on you. If that's, if that's what you're doing. Um, then that's then that's a good thing. If that's so there is no excuse because every single human on the planet needs to do that, right? So <laughs> you know you've got an answer for everybody that's, here today. That's it. Um, you, there's always that few minutes every day, and uh, yeah, it's always yeah, there. So, so I hope well, we're not going off track from what you wanted to share oh. today because you've now shared two strategies with us now. Mm. You know, and this is the second one: the space, mm. finding that space, and that's like ch changing state. Would that be similar to you know, NLP? That's exactly what it is. Changing your state of mind, which you That's can exactly do in is. a heartbeat, as Tony Robbins says. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's it is is uh, it, it is it's. So we talk about uh, we talk about deliberate thinking and automated thinking. The conscious mind, with the conscious mind, we're able to engage in deliberate thinking, as in we have uh, not only access to that thinking, we have awareness of that thinking, and we intervene in and even utilize that thinking. So it's deliberate. It's under under our guidance. And then the automated thinking is, is all of the processing that goes on in the subconscious away from our awareness. And we don't, we don't really have much, uh, well, we can interact with it to a very limited degree, but we don't really have a great deal of, of influence or control, control over it. But the thing that we do have control over with our deliberate thinking is we can at any moment step out of what, whatever situation we're in, whatever state we're in, whatever emotion we're experiencing, at any moment we can step out and we can just calmly have a look at this situation. And then I guess in that calmness, um, to the degree that we can generate it, that we can choose something different. And this is one of the, the, um, one of the, most, uh, one of the most precious gifts that human beings have is, is that somewhere in the evolutionary process, and no, I, I don't know when, and I don't think anybody, but somewhere in the process, as we developed consciousness and awareness, we developed free will. We developed the ability to become heavily involved in the, the direction that our life is going to take and in the person that we were going to become. We don't control it, but we influence it heavily. And that free will, that, that ability to stop and to not be the product of my environment or to not, to not just continue forward and have to be right, as a, to just stop and go, okay, what, what's a better way here? Like what's something that I can do that that will that will add to the situation, not detract from the situation, where I'm part of the solution, not part of the problem. That's one of the most precious gifts we have, but that's a skill, 
and it has to be practiced. We, we, we have to practice that skill. If we don't practice it, we just become, you know, these sort of, we get the same results that everybody gets. But if we, if we just become a little bit mindful and we engage that, that free will, that gift of ours, we really can turn our environment and ourselves that matter into something better. We, we can enhance it. We can be a source of, it's going to sound a little bit corny, but we can become a source of good as opposed to something that is, you know, standard and detracts or gets, you know, gets worse. Um, and, and that is, a, as you would sort of say, that, that's, a, that's a mindful activity. That's, it's one of the skills of emotional intelligence. Um, and if we practice that, if we're doing that, our children are watching us and that will be a skill that they will pick up and take into their lives almost certainly without you ever having to teach them anything or without them ever having to read a book. They'll just do it because, because you did it. Um, yeah. yeah. You're talking, just to clarify too, for those listening, we're choosing our thoughts Aren't we? We've got the power over our own mind, as Napoleon Hill talks about and thinking grow rich. Every yep. single one of us here on the planet, again, you're choosing everyone here, not leading anyone out, has the power, been gifted with the power over our own mind to choose the thought, to refocus on a better 100%. thought or find one thing that you see yep. in someone else that's good. Yep. Choice. Yeah. Beautiful. Because we, if we sort of take that sort of, uh, if we look at like the Stoic philosophers, um, or even, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapists in a more modern context that we can divide, you can divide everything up just into two categories. And that is that there are the things in life you can't control and the things in life you can, uh, and the things in life you can't control. That's a big, big list. Uh, the things that you can control, that's a really small list. Um, and so, uh, I would sort of ascribe to the philosophy that the, the things in life that you can control is what you think and what you feel what you say and what you do and that's it you you don't actually have control over any other thing but if you're aware of that they're the only four things that matter so that one of the things we've been saying to our clients in brazil is we can't control the pandemic and we can't control what the government's doing in regards to the pandemic because the government is responding in a very very interesting and ineffective manner but so we would say you can't control that but you can control your response to that you can control what it means you can control how you'll conduct yourself both at work and at home you can control um how uh whether you are you know going to get into the panic and the fear and the rumors or you can control whether you're going to choose to be a calm steady influence encouraging others and being as we would say being a bright light in the dark and, and so we can't control life, but we can control our response to life. And this gets back to that, that free will thing that, we, that we've been talking yeah. about, which was never part of the plan to talk about today, but here we are. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just quickly <laughs> just say that, because I think that was very, very, mm. it's very pertinent right now because mm. we can choose to think. So the thinking is like, because we, we have a perception, we attach meaning to it. So you can change the meaning of it. That's why it's so powerful. So we can say, hey, you know, well, let's look for the hidden blessings in what's going on in the world. Yes. And the doing is action, isn't it? Because life is action. So this 100%. is what say, do. We, can, we have power over those. Mm. It, it's excellent stuff, what you're sharing. So back <laughs> to your list, because I want to make sure you, you share it with us today. Right. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm loving it. All right. Um, there is a second tool, and it actually, this would be a, a great segue. Uh, okay. The second tool, so if, if your listeners are familiar with that sort of uh, what the cognitive behavioural therapist would say, that think, feel, do um, process. So um, the, the cognitive behavioural therapist would say that uh, one of the things that all human beings do all the time is we make meaning. So uh, in fact, they would say that we can't not make meaning. And, it, and so we make meaning of everything. And one of the 
sort of metaphors that we use in uh, CBT is we talk about a frame of reference. And the frame of reference um, is a, a metaphor that says, look, if we think in pictures, the frame of reference is the frame that goes around the picture. And the frame gives meaning to the picture. And so when we talk about a frame of reference, we could also be saying, I might say in my language, oh, my opinion is, or what I believe, or the way I see it, or the fact of the matter, they're all different words for a frame of reference. It's the meaning that I give, I give to a thing. And so there's three bits of data, which you've literally just spoken about on a frame. The first bit of data is what do I think about the picture? So what meaning have I ascribed to the picture? That means this. Then the second bit of data is what does my thinking about the topic in the picture make me feel? Because the topic in the picture, the person, the situation, um, you, you know, our belief about ourselves, that doesn't make us feel anything. It's a neutral event. But when I start to put meaning to it and I think something about the picture, that will generate a feeling, an emotion. And then the third bit of data on these frames of reference is what does what behavior does that emotion energize? And so all behavior is preceded by, by, by emotion. There's nothing that we do that doesn't have an emotional precedent to it because the emotions are like the chemical energy that drive the behavior. So we've got this think, feel, do. Now, where this becomes interesting for parents is, um, sorry, let me pause and just go back. Are you, in a different setting, we would spend a lot of time with me emphasizing how important frames of reference are and that frames of reference dictate our entire experience of life. So the frames I have around work dictate my experience of work. The frames I have around my partner dictate my, the quality of my relationship with my partner. The frames I have around me dictate my self-worth, self-esteem, all this type of stuff. If we understand that think, feel, do process, as a parent, if we're just uh, a little bit clever and a little bit patient, we can actually use the frame to gain a better insight into what we're experiencing with our teenage child. In that, I can't see your thoughts and I can't see your feelings, but I can see your behavior. And I know that the thinking and the feeling and the doing are all interconnected inextricably so you can't separate them out and so if uh, i am engaging with my um my child and they're behaving in some manner that just is not is just not making sense instead of just reacting to that behavior and getting upset about it and telling them not to do it or that they're bad for doing it or something what we could do is pause and we can use the frame we can what we call retro engineer the frame so i look at the behavior of my my child and let's just say uh, uh, let's just say we've got a situation where um, when the child goes out uh, into, a, into social settings with us at the moment, they either become very, very sullen and, very, and they're sulky almost, or they get really smart alecky. And it's one of those two things. And that's embarrassing for us. It doesn't add to a good social situation. The normal response would be to try and be punitive or correct them or tell them to not be that way. That's probably going to be ineffective. But what we could do is we could start to go, okay, I'm seeing this behavior. I'm seeing the withdrawal, sulky behavior, or I'm seeing this sort of smart alecky, you know, behavior. If I'm behaving that way, what must, if that was me, what must I be feeling to cause me to act that way? And it's probably not that they're bad or that they're evil or that they want to wreck your night. If we were going to be really honest with it, if I'm either withdrawing or I'm being socially sort of unpleasant, 
that's a fight and flight response. I'm either socially flighting, I'm withdrawing and sulk, you know, and it looks like sulking, but I'm, I'm flighting. Or if I'm being a smart aleck, that's socially a fight response. So my child is in fight and flight. So they're afraid in, in some way, shape or form, not afraid of the saber-toothed tiger, but, there's a, but this is a fear response. And so then, then I might ask myself, well, to feel that, what must I be thinking to generate that emotion? And it's not hard to then sort of go, well, if that was me, I would be thinking something like, um, I don't like these social situations because I get embarrassed or I feel out of place or I wonder if people think I'm stupid. Or So we're dealing with the child's not being problematic. The child's probably in a state of social anxiety. They're probably afraid. They're probably at that stage of life where they're now hyper aware of being judged and they're acting from that fear. And so instead of approaching the child and criticizing them even further for their poor behavior in a social situation, you might engage them in a conversation that sounds something like, um, uh, when we're going out in these social situations, I've noticed that you don't seem to be having a good time and that I sort of see you either withdraw or you, you know, you get a little bit, you can become a little bit sort of sarcastic with people. If that was me, um, I reckon that's because I was uncomfortable there. And I might even say that I was anxious to be there. And if it was me, I, I would sort of go, well, that's because I'm doubting something about myself that I, I, I don't like being there because I think people are judging me or is it, can you tell me what's going on for you in, in the situation? Is it the same or is it different or what's going on for you? When the child sees that you've one self-disclosed and gone, this is how it would, that, that's probably why I would be doing it. And you're not criticizing them. You're normalizing the behavior. You're saying, if that was me, I can understand that. You're way more likely, not guaranteed, but you're way more likely that the child will then start to talk to you about what's going on for them. Now, they may or may not have language for the meaning making, for the process, but they probably will have language for the emotions. And they might say, I don't like it. I get anxious. And you say, well, do, do, you, do you know why? And they'll, they'll probably say it. A teenager will probably say, no, I don't know. Or they might, but they might know. But if you can get that awareness and you can say to them then, okay, so what, what can I do? Because some of these functions I need you at, like we, we have to go as a family. So what can I do to support you in feeling more comfortable in that situation? Now, if you compare that to the outcome of what you're going to get, if you just criticize that child and, and try to correct them or punish them or say that they're not, you know, you're going to get a wholly different uh, outcome and you're going to get a wholly different sort of consequence for your long-term relationship. In this one, you're acknowledging that the child's a human being and they go through a process, you've got similar processes and you may just be able to engage them in a proper conversation, which will be so beneficial to the relationship. In this one, all you're gonna do is damage the intimacy between you and your child. Um, and they, they will just learn that you're unsafe or that you don't understand them or that you don't get them. And you, that, that rift will just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, it takes a, a, a fair amount of, um, one, <laughs> it's, it's a fair amount of patience and it's a fair amount of sort of insight into yourself. And this is getting back to your, you know, when you talk about these sort of key ideas that you keep talking, the emotional intelligence required here is, it's sort of, you know, up there a little bit. However, even if you don't get it totally right, just that you engage the child in that level of authentic conversation, you've got a way better chance of them of you building trust and connection between yourselves as opposed to widening that that gulf that gulf between yourselves yeah that's really lovely and yeah patience and understanding and caring enough of course which we do 
and going within, which is not always easy. And can we apply that 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 amazing thing that you just explained there, which mm. is a lovely tool? We can apply that to every scenario. Hundred percent. I mean, like even because I know the people, some of the families I coach, they've had experiences with their kids, their teenagers going to drugs, and I didn't. Well, you know, it, we, well, not that I had that in actual thing if you or the parent may not have it can be in a different form so you just go within go oh yeah you can relate it if you really look deep you can find it as you 100 yeah uh, and that 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 tool uh, so if you um and i'll we'll we i'll provide the you know the slides that i would normally present here we'll give those to you and there's a little bit of like a bit of a blurb that we can also give that that think feel do mechanism if you start to understand that like that that's the precursor to for example changing the meaning that you're making of life and belief systems you have about yourself and all this sort of stuff but if you you can use it then if you use it if we use it in reverse or we retro engineer instead of think feel do we're going do feel think it gains it allows us to gain a very human insight into another person to have a, an authentic conversation a real conversation with our child or a colleague or somebody who we lead at work um, or a friend and it applies to us as well, that if we in our lives uh, are getting a result in our lives that we don't want, that result is coming from behavior. It's coming from something that we do. And so then we could just in a quiet moment say, what am I doing to get that result? And then when we've got those behaviors, we could then ask ourselves in a quiet moment, what is the feeling that is motivating that behavior? So what, what am I feeling right before I do this and it will probably be something like a fight or flight response, like a fear response or an anxiety or a self-loathing, or it probably won't be, a, you know, a positive emotion sort of thing. Um, and then if we're brave, we can say to ourselves, well, what, what do I believe about this situation that is causing me to feel this way? That's causing me to act this way. That's then getting me these results. And if you get insight into that, often the insight alone is sufficient. If it's a bit more sticky, um, that's why we, that's when we would go and get, you know, get outside eyes. We would go and talk to somebody. Um, almost the entire therapeutic process, if you go and see a clinical psychologist, what they're doing is that process. They're listening to the things that you're telling them. They're looking at your repeated behaviors. They're making sort of, uh, sort of analysis or assumptions about the thinking and the feeling that is going on behind that. And then they help you take the frame that's ineffective and change it to a frame that's more effective. And that'll be 90% of therapeutic process every psychologist in australia is now going to not like me because i just gave away all their secrets um but that's that's basically 90 percent of, of of the process um, oh, thank yeah. you for explaining and jonathan when i heard you present at the psa the professional speakers australia i have honestly been really observing that that and there's also the freeze isn't there fight flight freeze and i've been observing the yes. myself and others and I've yep. been trying to go back to, to the root, well, I call it the root cause. I go back to the parents. So like if my, yep. my hubby, like if he's got the, he's got the fight. He's got the fight. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I have too. So I'm thinking, well, I know where the fight came from, but my dad was more cruisy, laid back and quiet. Yeah. I'm wondering whether he was the freeze sort of like, I've never, you he, know. He, yeah, he might be. He might, well, they, we all have a fight, flight, freeze response, but we, we all have a predisposition, meaning there is, there's a certain percentage of the population that they're more likely to move towards the threat. That's the fight people. Um, there's uh, those who are more likely to move away from, from the threat, the flight people, and there are those who are more likely to just hide in place. And that's the sort of freeze, um, freeze response. There's a theory that says it's a 
it's a species adaption that the fight flight freeze response is spread out amongst um, it's, it's distributed across the population. If everybody had a fight response, we'd all be extinct now. Um, and, if, and if everybody had a flight response, it'd be the same, you know, somebody's got to fight sometimes. And so there's a theory that it's a, it's a, it's a survival mechanism at a, at, a, at a species level. So I don't know if that's true, but it- Okay, that's good. Cool, right. That's excellent. Cause you, um, thanks for sharing that. Cause I did, didn't know. I just kept thinking, oh, the answers are, is it from our parents? Is it, we, we sort of, so it's a little bit of an unknown in other words. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, yeah, well, it is actually because um, there um, two. If if you and your husband are both sort of fight orientated, meaning you're you move towards threat as your first sort of response, that does not mean you're going to have fight orientated children. You're, you, there'll be a, a probably a fairly fairly equal chance that your children will be um, one of the three. Yeah. One of the three, yeah, yeah. opposites and complementary opposites, and uh, yeah, we distribute amongst. So, if your family is its own little tribe, uh, yeah. it makes sense for it to be distributed equally amongst the tribe. Um, okay, anyway, great. Again, well, I was pleased uh, we touched on that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, then, just one final, one final um, sort of thought that I would share is just for parents, and I'm I'm hoping this offers some insight and maybe even some some relief or some peace. Um, when we talk about the human brain, um, the human brain is uh, hands down, it's the most complex thing in the known universe. Like we do not know anything more complex and it's so complex that even using our own brains, we don't even begin to understand it. Um, it, it is um, a guy called, there's a, a neuroscientist called David Eagleman and he recently made a statement and said, because he is looking at um, connecting the human brain, what's called the singularity, connecting the human brain to the internet sort of thing. And he said, one of the challenges that we face is finding a way to replicate the processing capacity of a human brain. And he said, at current estimates, the processing capacity of an individual human brain is equal to the entire computing capacity of our planet at the moment. So that, uh, you know, it's sitting inside our head that we've got this mechanism that is processing trillions of bits of data per second. Uh, and if we added all the computing power of our entire planet, that's about equal. So how are we going to replicate that in, um, in, a, in an artificial form? I, I don't know. So we've got this thing that's incredibly complex and it's sitting in our head and it dictates every aspect of our lives. And for the vast majority of our lives, your brain gets the lion's share of the nutrients and the oxygen and you know everything, except when puberty arrives. And at puberty, a very, very funny thing happens in that all of a sudden the reproductive organs are getting the nutrients and the, and the, you know, they're getting the lion's share of all of the good stuff in the body. And to a, to a comparative degree, the brain is sort of um, running on like, you know, second rate nutrients, or it's like the reproductive system is getting the best of it and the brain gets sort of whatever's left over. But not only that, the thing that makes us human, the thing that makes that has separated us out from all the rest of the animal kingdom is a part of the brain that we refer to as the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain, the lobe that sits right behind our eyes here. And this is why we're human. So this is why we're not subject to instinct and why we can manage emotions and why we can feel one thing and do another and why we can plan forward in time and why I can make air vibrate with vocal cords and send that out and then you can pick it up and then the thing that I mean you understand it's that, that's that's the that's the thing is this prefrontal cortex it is the thing that also allows us to become socially intelligent so all emotional and social intelligence is is taken care of by the what they call the executive function in the prefrontal cortex 
the prefrontal cortex in humans does not finish wiring up until about the 24th or 25th year. Not only that, in your sort of late teens, um, not only is your prefrontal cortex not hooked up, the parts of your brain that, uh, uh, that govern social desirability, meaning that we would be subject to what our friends think, are getting, they're going through massive amounts of development and our brains aren't exactly getting nourished like they used to <laughs> because of puberty sort of thing. So if, a parent, if parents can keep in mind, um, when your child does something and it's stupid, it's not because your child is stupid and it's not because they're dumb and it's not because they're evil and it's not because, you know, that your theory that they were, you know, they're not your child, they were Satan's child and, you know, they were snuck into the crib while you weren't looking. None of that's true. It's that the brain is not wired up fully yet and it's not going to be until they're 25. And so they are going to be impulsive and they are going to be emotional and they're not going to be as rational or as reasonable as you want them to be. And they are going to be subject to what their friends want them to do. Not because they're bad, but because they're humans. It, it's, it's just the way it is. And so when they act in a way that seems just maddening or that you're, you're, you're just a loss for words, try and remember the brain, their, their, their human brain has not wired up fully and it won't wire up fully uh, until they're about, about the age of 25. And that's when, but even then, that's when they begin the process of becoming an adult. It's not like you hit 25 and they're an adult. They might be like, they might be grown up in years, but, but that's when we start to work out who we are, when we get a little bit of insight. And some people would say that's the age where we can start to form wisdom. But before then, um, nope, that's not what we do. Before then, we, we do dumb stuff. Um, and that's what it is. And so if, if parents can sort of keep in mind that that's what's going on, um, it, my hope is, is that, that that will bring a little bit of relief um, to them and a little bit of maybe patience or understanding as to uh, what, what's going on for their, for their child sort of thing. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. And I know that the teenagers, their teenagers or their kids are going to be very grateful that you shared that with them because the more, <laughs> the more parents that understand this, that the, that the frontal cortex hasn't fully developed and yep. they're doing the best they can with what they have, and, you know, maybe we need to talk to our creator if we want to change that. <laughs> we can lead by good example so they can follow yep. what we do so that it'll help them in their later years. And there is another TED yes. Talk. I watched it a long time ago, so I hope I've got the name correct. Uh, Dr. Jill Cook, I'm pretty sure, she talks about keep them alive to the 25. So that resonates with me too because I've got... <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. That's but I don't awesome. Have the yeah, they jump in cars, and that's why they have so many rules, you know, with the kids and the the, the chaperone. What's it? The uh, the deadline, the curfew. curfew. Yeah, the yes, hundred They yep. jump in a car with five of them, and they go speeding off and do whatever. We've got to keep these guys alive, you know. It's such. That's a great. Keep them alive to twenty five. That's awesome. I yeah. I really like that. I really like that. No, yeah. and and it's and it's true. It's true. Um, but the thing, as you and you indicated this, just in what you're saying there just because uh, they're not acting in a uh, intelligent or socially intelligent or emotionally intelligent or even you know any type of maybe socially appropriate way it doesn't mean they're not modeling you it doesn't mean that they're not learning osmotically from you it's just that the behaviors that you're displaying they don't have the cognitive capacity of replicating yet but they are modeling you and so the more emotionally intelligent the parent is, the more socially responsible they are, the more that they see their parent get angry and then go, just, just give me a second. 
just give me a sec. I just, I'm just going to breathe for a minute. So they see that they're still learning that. Now they might not be able to do it till later on, but they are still modeling from you. And so that, 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 that leading by example is so important, which is what you were literally just saying right then. It's so important. That is great. I feel like I'm just getting one-on-one -on -one coaching right here as a parent. <laughs> I'm, the work is amazing. Thank you. I've just I've been hanging on to every word you say. And talking about we can't do much about the development side. We can't speed up the you know no. the work from our creator. No. But there is someone else I wouldn't mind dropping the name just on this topic is mm. Jim Quick. You would know Jim Quick? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Of 100%. He no, talks legend. About, yeah, they love it. He legend. talks about the 10 yeah. brain foods. Like that's pretty awesome. And he teaches in acronyms that we can remember, avocado, berries. Look you know, at you. Carrot. Yeah. I mean, I'm just yeah. really off. But awesome. that's something parents could do. Let's. We just had a chat with, uh, we just went live with Don Tolman yesterday. Let's feed these young kids some nutritious food to feed their brain so they can be better thinkers as well. I'll just throw that in there too, Jonathan. I, I love. So if I can say, one, I agree with you 100%. Two, I love Jim Quick. And um, uh, giving your children access to those tools and skills while they're young, they will they, they'll be able to use maybe 80% of what the stuff that Jim Quick says, but, it, but they will still be learning it. And it means when they become adults and they can apply everything, then they're going to be way ahead of, they're going to be way ahead of the game. And all the things that Jim Quick teaches now about being more efficient in your reading and more efficient with your memory and they're wonderful skills for a young person to have. Like they, they breed confidence and they give a person, the young person a sureness in themselves. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful thing. No, I love Jim Quick. I, yeah, me too. I've been studying his work for quite a while and I share it with students, fast learning, remembering people's names. That's number one for me. Like how important, they say it's the most important name in your vocabulary is Bingo. your name. And you'll hear it from the other side of the footy field. So he's got great things to say. So let's drop his name in there too. Lo and love it. Links. We're going to share all your your powerpoints. We, yep, we will. Brain learns in pictures. We need to read it as well. Anything else you want to add? Because I know I'm very conscious of your time. You're a busy man. No, no. I, I probably just um, probably just to, to um, uh, if to the degree that parents can, if we just keep in mind, look, um, uh, it's a really really important role. Like I, I cannot stress to you how important it is. And as a psychologist who sat, you know, with people whose parent who had parents. That were less than effective whatever i just go you know it can be devastating however even average parenting is really really helpful even even average parents produce probably pretty good you know human beings and so i'd say it is really really important and at the same time educate yourself and learn everything you can and be the best you can be but but go easy on yourself you are not going to get it totally right you, there's no such thing as the perfect parent we are uh, to quote a mentor of mine bob dick we just muddle our way through we, we just try to be the very best that we can be. We accept that we're not, we are going to make mistakes. We're not going to be totally right. Um, and just, and, and, and go just a little bit, a little bit easy on yourself. Um, yeah. You know, so. Great. Thank you for sharing all the, the strategies, the skills, you know, focus on finding at least one thing in someone, well, your child yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and everyone for that matter, and find the space before you come home from work after your big day. Cause you know, daily challenges come, that's just real. That's real life. So that's going to be mm -hmm. a, it's going to be an absolute so find that space balance up change your state before you come and greet your beautiful family that are you know longing for you to come home and thank god that we we come home and mm. pause and have that conversation go deep and understand and have patience to find out what's going on when the behavior is not when they're not responding the way you want and then go within and have that courage to 
look inside yourself. We had a great chat mm, with Dr. John yeah. D. Martini yesterday. So oh, like, golly, we own the traits of the greats. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, it's really beautiful uh, chatting to John. He's doing really, really well. And that's another name I just love to share. Your name, John's name, Tony he's, Robbins' he's, work. He's great. He's great. Yeah, yeah. He's transformed my life and um, perception of how I see myself and people and everything. But absolutely, his, his, his words of wisdom are amazing. And my big takeaway from, from today, thank you, there's lots of it. So just you going through the fight or freeze flight response and understanding mm -hmm. that further and the skills that you've shared today, think, feel, do, and to become a better thinker. And I love that you said that, so if the parent focused on just becoming a better thinker, you know, to, to following your strategies, so that you're teaching that behavior to your children, mm. even though they may not be doing it now because they're under 25, That's they it. certainly will be learning from you osmo osmotically. Yeah. Osmotically. Yeah, thank yeah. you for that. That's awesome. I, yeah, I learned a great deal and uh, thank you. I feel like I've been one-on-one -on -one coached. Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> um, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed um, spending this time with you. It's been delightful. Oh, I've really enjoyed you. it. And I think your topic is of... Um, it's really important. Um, the, the, your area of focus is it's fiercely important. So well done and kudos and thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. We've got to look after our future generations because where are we going to be if our parents are going to lift the ante? Amen. Yeah, I'm into that. Thank you. It's been a delight for me also. I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for taking the time. I'm so glad I met you a month you, ago. You too. Absolute pleasure. Thank Take you. Take care. Bye bye, for now. Bye bye. Thanks, Jonathan.